Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hi guys, welcome to the show. This is where we talk about growing our life story business. Clients come to us because they want to record their stories and their memories to share them with their family and friends and with future generations. And they need our help to write that book or to make that video or audio. And today we're going to be talking about all things memoir with Beth Kephart. Beth is the award-winning author of 23 books. She's an award-winning teacher at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a co-founder of Junction Workshops, which offers a range of resources to memoir and essay writers. And her book on memoir making, Handling the Truth, was a Books for a Better Life winner and named a top writing book by many publications. Her memoir workbook, Tell the Truth, Make It Matter, which, by the way, I have and I highly recommend, it's been adopted by many schools and workshops programs. And her recent essays appear in LitHub, Catapult, Brevity, The Curator, and elsewhere. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thank you for having me. I heard about you through um, Dawn Brood, who has um, modern heirloom books. And um, oh, she's wonderful. Yeah, she she is very she's she's great. And she highly recommended you as a memoir teacher. So I know and that's when I ran out and bought one of your books and I've and I've loved it. Um, and I want to talk about that. But first, you um, you write your own memoirs, you have several titles of your own memoirs published. Um, and you teach memoir writing. So do you consider yourself a memoirist who teaches or a memoir teacher who writes? <laughs> Well, for uh, a long time, I was simply a memoir writer. And then when I became a teacher, there was a sense in me that I should step back from trying to publish memoir because I wanted to make all the room for my students, not just the stories they were telling and that began to fill my head and my heart, but just room out there in the world for them. Um, it And so I then began to write in different genres. I wrote a memoir of a river a first-person uh, autobiography of the Schuylkill River, which I love that book. And then I, I wrote a, a fable uh, about corporate America where I've done a lot of work, and then a series of autobiographical books for younger readers. But this year, or actually last year, I just so deeply missed the memoir form and began to write again essays with some kind of strange fever, fervor, I just really wanted to uh, adopt again my own first-person voice and begin to tell stories that were true, that had not been told for a long time, and that I have a different perspective on. And so in the last, I don't know, seven or eight months, I've had maybe 14 or 15 essays accepted for print or already printed, Mm -hmm. which means a lot to me. It's been a tremendous thing to return to the form, and I think I'll be a better teacher for having done this. I absolutely agree. I've just recently started a teaching or facilitating a workshop for for memoir writers, and it's something new to me. And I am a participant as well as a facilitator. So that means that I'm doing the writing along with all of the participants. And it's been eye-opening because you know, when I sit down with a life story um, client, the storyteller who's who's telling me their story so that I can write it up in a, in a book for them, I know that some 
questions can be difficult. I know that some questions take more time to think about and ruminate over. But now that I'm actually doing it myself, it's it's I just have a complete new understanding of the process that the storyteller is going through. Even even if they're not the ones doing the writing, just to conjure up these stories and like you just said, you know, things that haven't been told for a long time or maybe need yeah. to be looked at in a different light. Um, so I think it's really interesting. And um, so are you, you're doing a lot of writing yourself now? Does that mean that you've drawn back from, or you pulled back from the the teaching part of it? No, I haven't pulled back. Um, but yes, what you're saying uh, in your own experience is very true. And I think it's fun for you to be facilitator and teacher at the same time. I have in all of my teaching, in my five-day workshops, my one-day workshops, my work at University of Pennsylvania, when I I, I use um, prompts, but it's very contextualized teaching. I will, if there's a prompt involved, you're also going to hear from me the readings from, from various writers from across time and diverse cultures that also get at that prompt in some way. When I give the writers you know, this five to seven minutes to just begin to get some thoughts down about that prompt. I've never yet lifted the pen and written myself. It's it's during that five to seven period. I just sit and it's so almost like a prayer. I want to make sure that my thoughts are on those who are writing. And I think if somebody said to me in that five to seven minute period, okay, Beth, you write, I wouldn't have a thing that I could actually write. So I, I applaud you for being able to do both at once. I think my mind goes in one direction, teach or the other writing. And my, your question though was whether I'm writing um, more, teaching less. No, I'm, I'm going to be teaching the same amount. Yes, I am writing more. Um, What's different is I had been working for a, um, I had been doing a lot of work for corporate America, in fact, doing a lot of um, writing for and about patients. So I would interview those patients, uh, medical patients, and then write their stories for the various companies that uh, employed me. I'm doing a lot less of that. I had also been working for a um, uh, PBS arts and culture show as the uh, sort of finding a lot of the talent we brought on, researching them, and then writing the scripts, and I'm no longer doing that. And so in this time, um, there's a new envelope of time for me to write that will not distract or detract from my teaching. You mentioned prompts, and that was one of the reasons, well, that was the big reason that I bought the book that I did of yours, the Tell the Truth, Make It Matter. Um, and if anybody yeah. is curious, it's set up like a workbook, you know, where, where you actually can write in the book. And there are all these wonderful prompts. And, you know, maybe it's very obvious for all of the other life story professionals out there, I never would have thought, because I'm not doing my own memoir writing, I would have never thought to look at prompts for, for memoirists. Um, but they are so easily applied to the interview yeah. process. And um, yeah. one that I really loved, and I think it was the first one that I saw, and I said to myself, yep, I'm buying this book, um, was, uh, I think it's Write Your First Lie. So, yeah. you know, we've all fibbed in yeah. our life. We've all fibbed as, as children. And I've never, th I would have never thought of that. And I love that idea <laughs> of kind of getting to a story in a sort of slantwise manner, um, because that's not yeah. the kind of, I, I certainly would have never thought to ask a, a uh, one of my clients that question. So can you talk yeah. a little bit more about the prompts and the power of them to kind of evoke these stories? Oh, I think, I, I think, uh, as you do about getting to our stories in sideways, 
fashion. And I've also written and published poems and written and published fiction. And I, I feel very strongly that if you ask somebody to sit in a room and tell you, tell me about your life, um, you're not going to get the flavor and the, um, the truly meaningful things that matter. Um, I do believe in the unexpected prompt. I believe, as I mentioned earlier, in the contextualized prompt. So that if I'm talking about um, conversations that might have happened at a dinner table years ago, I think it's important to hear in the workshops that I do from MFK Fisher and others um, mm. that have written about those you know, food-related memories. Um, I think... What I've done in my life is spent a lot of time reading and studying. I would love to know, but I don't have a number, but I know that it is hundreds of memoir and, and far more essays. And I am constantly asking myself about the elements and the scenes and the details that appear there and, and trying to imagine how the writer came upon them. How did she remember that thing in 1962? Um, how... How did this gorgeous scene come to be on a page? I am deeply aware when I'm reading memoir that does not have that scenic, atmospheric, detail-rich quality. I could name them, but I won't because I'm only ever a believer in, in sharing the positive. But I, I am disturbed when a memoir is out there and there, it, there's just a recounting of uh, life facts but not uh, a feeling that the life has been lived. And I can tell you, I just spent um, uh, one of the other things that I've been doing in the last several years is spending a lot of time with my father, and uh, he will be 89 shortly, and he wanted to know what he could give to others for Christmas. And so I had him writing his memoirs. And my husband's a designer, book designer. We do a lot of that uh, work together, uh, which is why he knows all the techno stuff and I don't. Um, and so we designed a very beautiful hardback, hard hardcover book for my father with photographs and all these elements in it that make his life story come to life. But to try, my father could remember some things that mattered a lot, stories that he had told frequently. But to get him to really settle in on some of the stories that would matter most to his children and grandchildren, You, other kinds of questions get you there. And one of my favorite parts of the book my father ended up writing was um, when I asked him to remember Christmas, the Christmases of his past. And he was able to remember a radio, a small, tiny radio that, radio that sat on his desk in college and then Christmas carols playing and being the last one mm. to go home that, that freshman year. And that is evocation. That you can feel and see. Uh, and I want uh, my memoir writers to evoke their lives and not to report on their lives. And all the prompts come from that. And in this Tell the Truth workbook, as you know, there's a series of questions in about the middle of the, word, the, the book that, you know, are, seem to be, um, you know, easy questions, silly questions when they begin, what do you know about ice cream? What do you know about rain? What do you know about these sorts of things? But then they escalate into what do you know about generosity? What do you know about, you know, um, um, truth, you know, I'm just, um, um, it's not sitting in front of me, but, and, and so you, I've been in rooms, very large rooms, there's 200 people teaching, and I read a list of these questions, and then I ask 
um, them to choose one question and in three minutes just begin to write something that relates to that question. And the stories that happen within three minutes in a group of 200 strangers is unbelievable. And it's all about the questions that you ask. Mm Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, very often when we're sitting down with somebody to to do the interviews, you know, I, I, I always warn the storyteller at the beginning, you know, the first or t- one or two interviews is sort of the honeymoon phase, where they're going to feel really good because they have a new person who's never heard their stories. And they get to tell all of their favorite stories, the ones that they've been telling over yeah. and over again. And That's then, like, yeah. yeah, and then it just and it drops down a level, if we are doing our jobs, right, as life story professionals, then we then we go down to a deeper level. Um, after that, honeymoon phase kind of burns itself off. Yeah. And and then yeah. we're yeah. and then we're asking questions um and hopefully evoking memories that maybe they haven't thought about or um you know maybe it's they they have a certain interpretation that they've never really looked at very closely and now it's time to see things in a different light. And that's when it gets really interesting, I think. Yeah, uh, that's when it starts to matter. I mean, yes, that the name of this book, Tell the Truth, Make It Matter, it's the making it matter part. I just grabbed the book off my shelf. I'm going to do this so that your, so that your listeners can have some fun. I'm going to just read, you, read a list of questions from oh, that small part in the book. So the how do you, and again, mo- much of this book is contextualized prompting, and, um, but here is one of this, these questions, accelerating questions. Um, all under the how do you question mark. Um, and the point here in this moment would be to choose a single one of these questions and to, when this podcast is over, to spend three or four minutes answering that and see where it takes you. So it starts silly and simple. How do you brush your teeth? How do you slice your bread? How do you shelve your books? How do you speak? How do you perform? How do you wait? How do you fight? How do you hope? How do you give thanks? And no matter what question is answered, I've been blown away by the responses. I mean, how do you slice your bread? If you were to ask one of your clients that question, or how did your mother slice her mm-hmm. bread, you would learn something extremely important about the family, which is a different way of getting at truth and family truth than just simply saying, tell us about your mother. Mm. But, exactly. but how did your mother slice her bread? Mm-hmm. Well, she held the bread tightly or she, you know, big slices, thin slices. She just ripped it. She never bothered. She made me do it. You know, whatever it is, it begins to tell a story about this person that ultimately affects the storyteller. Mm-hmm. Well, right when you were reading those questions, there every single question had a little flare in my brain go off about some memory. And you said slicing, now this isn't bread, but slicing to me, that brings me back to the my childhood when we had an ice cream parlor in a deli, and everybody in the family ended up, everybody except for me, ended up slicing, having a really bad cut on their hand or the, or oh, wow. their, their, you know, some part of their hand from the meat slicer. Um, And, you know, and then that just opens up all kinds of other memories of working in the ice cream parlor when I was a kid and, um, and, you know, the deli and yeah, and then, and then I love the whole, um, how do you fight, you know, that 
right away. Yeah. Just I had memories of, you know, how I am, I'm not a fighter, and then how my parents really weren't fighters, but how sometimes we needed to. So yeah, the, brilliant. I, I am so impressed that you came up with that. Is that was that through <laughs> lots of um, years of teaching and it, and it kind of evolved over time? What's interesting, Amy, is that I have, I would not be able to count how many memoir workshops I've taught, how many memoir classes through the years, but I've, I've really very, very rarely taught the same thing twice. So it's not as if I go into a classroom and, you know, with a plan that's something I did the year before or the year before that, uh, I am constantly giving myself really hard intellectual challenges. I'll, I'll, I'll decide to read a group of a dozen recent essays or memoir, and I'll, and I'll for example, um, a couple of years ago when I was doing a lot of writing for the Chicago Tribune, I decided that I wanted to study the empathetic imagination in memoir. And then I just took, you know, bought a bunch of books, took everything off of the shelves that I had, and just sat there for several weeks looking for signs of the empathetic imagination. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask you to pause there. What is the empathetic imagination? I don't I'm not familiar uh, with that term. Well, it, yeah, it's a term. <laughs> I, I just kind of. Um, I don't know if other people use that term. I'm sure they do, but it's just something I began to, to think about. Uh, it is the ability to enter into the realm of the other. Uh, and I could go in, on into this at length. I think I'll give you an example. Uh, we teach these memoir workshops five days in Frenchtown, New Jersey is one place we've done them. And during two of those sessions, one of the 20 things that we did as a group is I uh, I went into the town, we know the town very well, and we found um, eight people who were willing to spend some time with our memoir writers, eight people who I knew would have some sort of bridge because of their life story too. And then our writers had to spend enough time with them that they could tell their story, their, their partner's story in first person before a crowd, using the kind of language the person would use, not just simply like a transcription, but and in that way to enter into um, that that other person's world. This is extremely important to memoir writers, I believe, because memoir can be the most narcissistic of the forms if you allow it to be. It's all about me. It's all about me, and my trouble's bigger than no. You know, I've got the worst thing that ever happened. Listen to me. And I want my readers and my writers and my students and my friends who write memoir to recognize that they aren't, we aren't, uh, memoir writers are not the most important people in the room at all times, and that our stories are going to be bigger if we also allow ourselves to think about, care about, truly enter into the lives of those who have made our lives possible. And so, to go back to this, your question was, I think, where, where do these prompts come from? I give myself a task. I then work on it. I create an essay in writing the essay, which I do a dozen, two dozen, three dozen drafts. Um, I keep refining my idea about what something is. And then from that, I will say, okay, this is an important thing. And I'm going to find a way to, um, you know, share it with others, get it out there so that they can think about doing that too. Mm. 
I love that exercise that you have people do where they go out and 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 make this connection with somebody and to then turn around and be able to tell as if they're personifying their partner and telling okay. that partner's story. What an incredible um what an incredible thing to practice. I I'm I'm seeing that as applied to life story writers and you know I always I always recommend people um they'll ask me if I use a transcription service or if I do my own transcribing of interviews and I always recommend that you at least do um the first the first part of the first interview, if not the whole first interview, transcribe yourself. Because I always feel like, you know, that's that's that person's voice coming to me through my fingertips and kind of getting uh, lodged in my very brain. Important. Right? But you've yeah, taken I, it to a completely different level. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of bowled over. <laughs> no, that, but, but I, think, I think that that's really important. You know, I, I mentioned that I did a lot of work in corporate America, and I had a book that I had to write for a company. They, I, they gave, let me think, I think it was, 52 people I interviewed for this book in each about two or three hours, some in person, but many of them were all around the world. I personally transcribed every minute of that. And believe me, in an unair-conditioned house over the summer, it was something else. But it was really important. These people were, as I said, from all over the world, the way they were using language, the way they paused with language. What I wanted my writers to do, and this is interesting because this is, something else that I'm working on. I gave myself just recently another really hard, I mean, it's hard for me. My brain is small. A really hard project, um, which is really about voice and diction and listening and looking at that very carefully. I want my writers to be able to listen to how other people talk. And that's really important in and of itself. But then it also enables the writers to uh, go back and go, yeah, well, how do I talk? And how do I write? And what's the gap in terms of my application of voice between my spoken word and my written word? And why is the gap the way it is? And could what's on the page be more natural? Or is it a really damn good thing that I'm in such good control of what's on the page because I'm all over the place when I'm talking? And I, I want people to listen to that in themselves. I love the flip side because we don't often talk about the cases where, you know, maybe we meander too much when we talk and we're not as fluent of a speaker, sort of like me. That's how I consider myself. But on the page, we have more control because usually, um, you know, the, the people that I come across very often, um, you know, I, I write 99.9% of the book, but maybe they'll want to have something that they wrote um, previously, or or maybe they'll want to have a little introduction to the book. And sometimes they actually want to write it themselves. And what I have found, and I'm, I'm sure you probably come across this too, people who are not writers by profession, um, or who, who don't even do it so much as, a, you know, an avocation, um, it comes across as stilted. And, and they, yeah. you know, we have this tendency to want to sound smart, because it's on paper. And, you know, we want people to think that we're clever and intelligent. And so things go a little sideways. Um, so I, yeah. I like that you yeah. address that, that gap. Um, and how do you have people do that? Then if you're if you're teaching memoir writers, um, how do they look at that um, in, in, a, in a real practical way? Well, one of the many ways, but I will just focus on one. Um, how is dialogue used in memoir? Mm -hmm. And always, uh, typically, there's going to be a back and forth. 
first of all, as you may know, and in, in, I've written this other book, as you, as you mentioned in the intro, Handling the Truth, uh, and there's a whole thing on dialogue there and in Tell the Truth and Make It Matter also. There's that, you know, John um, part, of, part of the book. Um, I want people to think carefully I encourage people to think carefully about what is inside the quotation marks. And does that really sound so, okay, that's what you've just quoted yourself as saying, you know, in this back and forth with your mother. Uh, does that really sound like you? I'm listening to you talk. You never use those words. Mm-hmm. That is that dialogue natural to you? Uh, or, or did you just pretty it up? Because the more it doesn't sound natural to the writer, uh, the less authority the piece is going to have, the less trust readers will place in it if suddenly someone that everybody knows, Joe, talks in circles and swears a lot or whatever it is, and yet here it is so straightforward, prim and proper. Um, I, I think about diction a lot, and Mary Oliver, the great poet, said that diction is the atmosphere created by words. So what is the atmosphere you create by words when you're speaking and what is it in the page? Now, that is not, I am someone who can easily ramble. And I would say that it takes me, um, I can ramble right now when we're talking. My first drafts on paper are stilted. Uh, They are so self-controlling as to be cold and suddenly they're formal and then it's it's then but during this process I've learned since I'm old and I've been doing it a long time don't worry about it Beth what you're trying to do is just get to the heart of the matter so this is a process I'm just looking what is the truth what is the truth oh now I found the truth draft eight I know the truth is well wow the voice I'm using to tell that truth is pretty awful how am I going to relax it? How am I going to make it feel again like me? You know, and it takes, it's draft after draft and then seriously putting it away for months if you can afford to do that and then coming back and going, oh my God, that's, that, that was, that was an interesting thing to be talking about, but that is not the way you should publish that. I'm so glad I didn't send it out yet for publication. You know, that's just how I have to think. So it's, it's, we all have different ways of getting to the heart of the matter the books that I've put together. And also, um, your listeners should know, because it's free, that uh, among the resources that Juncture Workshops offers is this newsletter. And I put so much into that. And it is monthly. It is, uh, you know, you just subscribe. And each month, I interview a one of the top working memoirists of our time. So that's one element of it. Oh, lucky and then you. I have, well, it's, Cool. Yeah, just I like bet what it you is. Do, right? You, you know. Right. We talked and about this before have, we started recording. How I I feel so lucky yeah. with this podcast because I get to just call in anybody that I want or email them and say, "Hey, I have this podcast. Can I talk to you?" So good for you. You get yeah. to pick the brains of some really clever, interesting people. I'm sure. Well, many many of them are my friends. You know, I, I've been very blessed in my life, and I I know um, these these writers. Not all of them, um, but uh, I have been overjoyed by the um, seriousness of response to hard questions about memoir. And then another aspect of it is, uh, for example, I was talking about, I always have 
something where I'm talking about the recent books I've read and what I've thought about as I've been reading them. So this last one where I was talking about approachability, what makes a memoirist approachable? And I took three different memoirists and and looked at small, uh, one was Pam Houston and, um, you know, and and just looked at their, their relatively new books and, um, well, one was an old book. It was Sonia Livingston's Ghost Red, which is an extraordinary book. So I do that. And then we have a column by our readers where they recommend a memoir that they love, something that I might not have thought to put in the um, in the publication. So we've had this last one was Jeanette Winterson, and uh, we've had Abigail Thomas. And, um, you know, so it's it's something where you're going to get four or five different memoirs that you're exposed to in that issue and you might say to yourself, you know, I want to buy that memoir and find out more um, about that particular work. So if, if, if memoir is of interest to your audience, that's a, a free and interesting way to, um, to get access to the people who are writing them. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, um, I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes so that people can sign up for that. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's, it goes back to what you were saying, you know, by studying things, the works that other people have done, that's the best way for us to learn the craft. And whether it's as a memoir writer, or as more to the point of what we do is sort of memoir ghost writing. But it's still, you know, it all boils down to the same thing. It's all telling a life story. Um, And, you know, I've recommended to people and I do this a lot, just because story structure for life stories, I find that to be a very big challenge. Um, yeah, and and definitely. I think for a literary uh, memoirist, it's it's a little bit different. Obviously, it's very challenging, but it's a you're aiming for a different story structure for somebody who's telling a life story because they want their kids and their grandkids um, to yeah. know about their life. It, it's shaped differently. So I I like to gather, you know, I like to collect other people's life stories when I can find them. It's very hard because by and large, they're not, they're not published. They're right. Just, yeah. right. Yeah. But just, you know, if you find a book that you like, um, and it has something to do with the work that you're doing, you know, take it apart. You know, I, I write things out all the time. I'm, you know, I put all kinds of notes in the margins. Um, it's just a matter of analyzing it so that you can learn how something was put together. And then you can bring that back to your own work with your clients. Yep. Yeah, and, and 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 that's important. And then one thing I've also said that's different between memoir and, and life story, typically different, not always, is that a memoirist or a, a real literary memoirist is writing towards themes and universal mm-hmm. questions, whereas a life story is more autobiography, where the and and, and more perhaps not always obviously, but perhaps more chronology driven than um, a memoirist who, you know, um, may not ever even say what day they were born, you know. They may just be focusing on the small slice of their life and and exploring what it means to them and to others. So they are, um, but when memoiristic approaches and considerations and questions enter into the life story, the life story is going to have a far greater impact on the children and grandchildren that are reading it. 
I agree wholeheartedly. So I, I'd like to talk or have you talk a little bit about some of these themes that you um, that you teach or, or or use. One in particular that um, you have an online video workshop, and I and I was looking at parts of that, and you um, talk about food and kitchen and recipes, <laughs> and that is something that comes up with almost every life story client, um, because it's just such a, um, yeah. a fundamental integral part of our lives, right, especially when we're children. So can you tell us why, um, why that could be a theme and, and why it is so powerful as a theme? Well, because all senses are involved, oh. fully engaged, or they should be. And um, so of course, if you're sitting at a kitchen table, you it's in all moments of our lives, all senses are, there's input available to all of our senses, but they are particularly keened up at over a meal. Either your extraordinary, you know, there's, there's emotions attached to what you're eating, to how long you've waited to eat, to who's getting to talk while you eat, to whether the light is really bright while you're eating, to, um, you know, the secrets that you're keeping while you're eating. There's something that intensifies when food is involved. Um, And so I think that's an important thing. But other themes in that video series are uh, about, for example, um, medical moments and interventions. And there's one... um, one in that series that is about not being able to write. And then the, the one that really I loved doing, those took forever, I have to say. Hmm. Just again, because I gave myself these, I would say to myself, um, um, I, I want to write about the distance between now and then in memoir. You know, the, old, the, the older person looking back, the young person looking how I want. So then I would look at my shelves and go, well, who, what, how am I going to do this? And for that one, I was looking at um, E.B. White and Terrence Dupre. And, um, and it was just actually incredibly moving to put those together together. Uh, to put the two of them, E.B. White, Terrence Dupre, I bet they never had a conversation in real life. But when, when I was putting them together for that particular segment, that video segment, I learned, I, I was actually quite emotional about it. And then I did one with Virginia Woolf and Sally Tisdale and, and others who talk about um, writer's block um, and first memories. And, you know, so I chose for the video series um, universal themes that are to me emotionally resonant Mm. and because we write our best work well I should say we we uh, excavate our best memories when we're emotionally engaged we sometimes then put all those memories out on the page in whatever way we do that and then have to come back and make it and apply the intellect and the craft of the form to make it um, whole. But at first, what I want, I'm much happier if I'm in a workshop and I've just given my students five to seven minutes to respond to something. I'm much happier if the response is a messy sprawl in those first five to seven minutes than something very controlled. I'd much rather see, yes, Ed, yes, you can take that in this direction, or Jen, you know, you just found something that's the start of a story versus a response that, look, it's perfect, it's done. No, if it's perfect, 
it's broken because perfect is, um, which is about another essay I've been working on lately, um, is, uh, is, is um, sterile. Sterile. That was I'd rather see ex- something sloppy. <laughs> right. Sterile was the exact word that popped into my head when you said that. And I, I'm having the same, um, the same challenge with the, with the workshop um, that, you know, the life story workshop that I'm doing, because people are conditioned by school and, you know, in life to to want to, you know, put their first best effort out. And, you know, I, I, I default back to, um, you know, bird and Lamott bird by bird, you know, you, you want a shitty first draft. And, and that's that because there is room to grow. That's, you know, that's like the fertilized ground that things can spring forth from, rather than having something all packaged up neat and tidy and and like you said sterile um can you tell us a little bit more about your workshops and the the reason i'm asking and i'm really interested about the workshops is because um there are a lot of life story professionals who do workshops so um they'll you know maybe or or maybe they're coaching people who want to do their own writing but but don't want to do it all on their own so there's people who you know, start, uh, do all of the writing for a client, but then there's others who get a little bit, have the clients be a little bit more involved in the creative process. So for, for your workshops, um, how do they run and how, um, uh, you, you've mentioned several times this five to seven minute, uh, writing period. So oh give yeah, us a that's just a very, very small thing. Yeah. Um, well, every workshop is different, as I said, and every workshop is built around, um, different themes um so it's very clear before the writer even signs up what what we're going to be looking at um wow so it's like i work 10 to 11 hours each day of those um Mm -hmm. and i would say that the three hours in the morning is they i have given them packets of reading readings and they um we do a deep line by line analysis of the chosen thematically chosen readings and then out of that there's space for these these prompts that, that come directly out of it and we might do two or three sets right well, three usually sets in a morning um of you know here we're going to analyze this piece of writing here's two or three prompts that come out of this writing. Now we're going to analyze the next, et cetera. And each uh, writer is getting the opportunity to share their, their small segments as it goes on. Then we have a, a lunch together, a wonderful uh, restaurant in town that caters to us. And then we go back to, um, um, and then there's, and then I meet one-on-one. So I have three people a day. I meet one-on-one with them and they have sent in advance some pages that they've been working on, um, you know, before we've even met. So the the prompts are designed also to help. I know who's coming. I know what they're working on. So the prompts are designed to help each person work on the bigger work that they're, they've got uh, going in the background. So I do the one-on-ones with them. And then around, I don't know, four in the afternoon, the whole group reconvenes. And those pages that they sent in before they shown, showed up at the workshop are group critiqued. Um, and that lasts for, you know, quite a period of time. And so these are, these are intensive. Um, I've also done one day workshops where we've done, I've built books. My husband, again, he's designed these beautiful books that are filled with photographs and prompts and, um, 
they're very somatic and, and, and we build throughout the day towards something big. Just as my workbook builds to the prologue of a memoir, my um, memoir workshops build toward something. Um, so, for example, in I wanted everybody in my last five-day workshop not just to have 15 or 20 new possibilities, new prompt-generated um, um, pieces. I wanted them also to have a critique on the work that they've been doing, but I also wanted uh, them to come out of it with an 800-word essay which was based on all brand-new material from the week, and I wanted them to also have a sense for where they might be able to publish that. So we have they come out of this with all kinds of insight and information and new things to read that are um, specific to their own work, but also uh, very craft oriented. So it's, it's, uh, people say it's like a master's, I, I, you know, you know that I teach at Penn. I, in those five day workshops, they get as about as much as I can do in a whole semester at Penn. It's very intense. And, And that's, that's good and bad, right? I mean, some people would prefer to have a workshop where, you know, and this is great too. Um, it's yoga in the morning and, you know, maybe two hours of prompts and then the gathering in the afternoon. And, and I think those are wonderful. I just am so freaking intense and I just want, so I want to get, my intensity is about wanting to give people everything I know in that moment in time and everything I can give. Um, and, and the people who come to my workshops, they can, we, I mean, we all become great friends. It's, it's just this big, huge family that keeps growing and growing. It is beautiful and it's community rich and it's deeply engaged also with the town that we go to. They all know us well and it's a beautiful thing. And which town um, is this that you so go to? This, this is in French town, New Jersey. Mm. So, yeah. Well, so it's, uh, when, when you said that you are intense and, and they tell you how intense you are, um, y- earlier you said that you do it new each time, that you're not defaulting back to things. And that's that's extraordinary. I've never heard of workshops that are like that. Um, and do you well, think because that... Because there's always, there's always new memoirs being written, new right. essays being written. There's, there's a new... Um, the, the gestalt in the world shifts, the... The desire, the, the 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 market for what kind of memoirs and essays shifts. I'm very aware of that as someone who's publishing myself. Um, and also, I think that we can't. My feeling is that we have to. I don't really like to use the word student because I don't really feel that there's a differential between the person who happens to have brought the reading and who happens to be asked. We we're all um, human beings and we're all searching for something and we all need each other for the conversation. And so I am very, I get to know the people who are a lot. uh, So many people are, they return again and again, but there are always four or five new people each time. And um, we, I want to know who they are. I have conversations, uh, email conversations with them before they get there. And so Every single person there will have had two or three readings chosen very specifically for them, either their style of mm. writing or the theme mm. that they're presenting. And so, but everybody learns from everybody else's specially selected material, and it's just the way I do things. I I only do two of these workshops 
five-day workshops a year. You know, I teach at Penn and I, because I am exhausted for the next oh, four weeks. That's it's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it sounds exhausting. How could you do more than that? <laughs> yeah, um, no. Yeah, but, and but I, the newsletters take, take a ton of time, too. And, and you know, that's another case with why they're, they're really... Um, um, they matter a lot to me. I want them to be really good, and it's not like we have a massive readership or anything. But I, I want, I want people to um, get something out of what I do. So, mm-hmm. and I'm very lucky that I work with my husband, right? So, he designs the newsletter, takes the photographs for them. Um, when we go to Frenchtown, he does. Sometimes we do art-related or photography-related projects that he leads, or he's um, photographing the town, and we're doing a town performance. And so he's setting up, um, he's making the experience much, much bigger. Um, and he's an artist, and I'm a writer, and we're just trying to create um, experiences that will matter. Uh, whether or not somebody publishes their book should be secondary, um, be... Um, it's, it's, did they grow and were they loved in the process is really important to us. Right. And it's such a generative process when you do, like you said, when you have conversation, when you have more than one person. And I think that's such an important thing to remember. And that's part of the power of having um, a life story writer do your book for you, because then there is that conversation between two people and somebody bearing witness to somebody else's story, um, I think is so important. Right. Well, Beth, this is fantastic. I, I, I'm just eating up everything that you're talking about. Um, and I can't wait to look at, at some of your other books, too. Um, if if listeners want to get in touch, um, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes, but um, any good place, central place for them to go? Well, there's, there are two sites, you know, there's the Juncture Workshop site, and then there's Beth Kephart books. So if people are interested in the essays that I've been Publishing lately, that's in Beth Kephart Books. Juncture Workshops is, and the two you can get from one to the other, but that really tells the story. That's where you're going to find the newsletters, the video, the workshops. Um, uh, that's very specific to the workshops and the resources. Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to thank talk you. to us today. Thanks for finding me. And that does it for our interview with Beth Kephart. I'll have links to everything that we talked about in today's show, including links to her memoir writing books on thelifestorycoach.com. Just look for episode 47. I really encourage you to take a look at these memoir writing books, um, even if you don't write your own memoir, which I happen to be among those who do not. Um, But she's got some great advice that we can adapt to work with our own clients. Thanks for listening to today's show. Until next time, go out and save someone's story.